Welcome to podcast number 138 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is October 5th, 2021, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest today is a return guest, David Swinson. David grew up in Washington, D.C., Beirut, Mexico City, Stockholm, the son of a foreign service officer. He's a retired police detective from the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C., having been assigned to major crimes. Swinson is the author of The Second Girl, Crime Song, and Trigger. He lives with his wife and daughter in Northern Virginia. Today, we take a deep dive into his latest standalone novel, City on the Edge. Publishers Weekly calls it an outstanding thriller. Swinson offers the reader a deeply felt coming-of-age novel set against a background of powerful authenticity. This is not to be missed. I enjoy having my old friend David on the podcast again, and I think you'll look forward to hearing what he has to say, along with my cat in the background. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good crime novel on my coffee table or bedstand. We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. On alternating weeks, we are introducing a new podcast, How to Rocket Your PI Business, featuring successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice for those just starting out or for those who are struggling. We will learn from the best. And of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share a few of their favorite detective stories and sage marketing tips. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring you inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, series prequel novella, Liberty City Nights. Miami's most wanted drug dealer is on the run, always one step ahead of the cops. Young, newly married FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, working with the Fugitive Task Force, has figured out how to draw him out of hiding. Will she get killed in the final showdown? For my listeners, this is free. Go to my website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A dot com and click on the link. It will be delivered to your inbox immediately. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here again. It's my pleasure. And when your publicist told me about City on the Edge, I said, oh, yeah, you know, Dave and I are friends. I want to have him on the show and I want to hear the rest of the story because you told me a little bit of the story when we were down in Baushikan back when we could go to uh, conferences in person. That was Dallas, I think was uh, October of 2019. So there you were. I'm going to set the stage a little bit here for you, for my listeners. You had been on before talking about your flawed detective, Frankie Marr, and the three books that you had written about him. I read all three, loved them. It was great stuff. And then you said, well, I'm going to make this left turn. 
<laughs> so why don't you tell me about the left turn and then let's just talk about how your feelings went and how things developed and what went on and any uh, steps or missteps along on the journey and then where you're at now. Well, after the Frank Barr trilogy, I really wanted to do something different. I wanted to do a standalone, not so much a departure from the trilogy, something that had been with me for, for years and years and years. And I grew up in a foreign service family and one of the cities I grew up in was Beirut, Lebanon. That was a city that always stayed with me, a setting I always wanted to have in a book. And I had this idea that I only got after writing the Frank Mars series. At one point, it was going to be sort of a, you know an autobiography of my time there as a kid because I got into a lot of trouble. But then after Frank Mars, I decided just to do a crime fiction element and I'll make it a mystery. And fortunately, my agent loved it. My uh, editor loved it, the idea. And but I was pretty pretty scared about writing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said. Yeah, I had other drafts throughout the years that just totally sucked, you know, and just weren't right. And it felt right this time. And again, fortunately, it, it came out well. I loved it. And, and it took the three books, the trilogy of Frank Marr, to be able to settle on an approach that felt genuine to you as opposed to the other ones, which, you know, maybe felt a little awkward. We're like putting on ill-fitting clothes. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. No, that's neat. And it only came about because of the fact that you had done so much with the Frank Marr trilogy. Now, just my question is that this idea that had always been kicking around in your head was, why wasn't that the first book? Why was Frankie Marr first instead of this, this other idea? Just timing. And uh, The Second Girl, which was the first in the Frank Marr series, was a book I decided to write after several rejections. There was a lot of fear there, too, that I, I would write the City on the Edge. It wasn't titled City on the Edge back then, but it just get rejected. And I was just uh, a little scared of doing that. All the other books I had tried were too, very police procedural. And then Frank Barr, the second girl, was just some totally outside of myself. I had to had to write that. The time was right for that. So again, those three books, and then the subsequent next three book deal that I got with the same publisher just gave me the leverage I needed to write this book. Cool. That is so neat. Now, it's interesting that the, the publisher they weren't clamoring for Frankie Marr the four they were they said okay no this is cool we like this we like this idea you pitched it to them and they they thought that was neat and not only that but they also offered you a th- another three book series right yeah that was, this is number one in the three okay. book series no yeah. kidding so I get to meet Graham again no I mean not in a series featuring Graham I'm definitely sorry. not I, I just didn't I, I, this is a standalone. I got it. Okay. I mean, if anything, a grown-up Graham will come back. Okay. But, you know, not Graham. Is a, that'd be too much like, you know, a Hardy Boys type thing or something like that. No, I get it. I didn't understand it until you just explained it to me. But the fact is that your editor, your publishers thought enough of, of what you wanted to do to take a chance on uh, City on the Edge and saw that this character had legs and that you could do more with this uh, character going forward. And they offered you a three book set. So congratulations, man. That's cool. Yeah. Thank you. That's really neat. So you had some other manuscripts that were for, as you thought, memoir or pseudo autobiographical, getting the right syllables on the right ascents. But then you turned it into a crime fiction. That's neat. I, I like that. 
I, I have it open to almost halfway open because that's as far as I, I got into it before we decided to sit down and talk. And I will read the rest of it. I'm going on vacation tomorrow and I have this book, you know, on my, it will be on my nightstand tonight and go with me on my vacation. But I really like the idea that you took a chance. I mean, that it might have been safe to stay within your world of cops and cop jargon and understanding, you know, every square inch of Washington, D.C. But no, you said that uh, you wanted to uh, go out there and uh, try something different. Can you talk about that process a little bit? What what your thinking was on that? Yeah, go back to 1973. <laughs> okay. In Beirut, Lebanon. I'm not someone who can write based on, I mean, do a lot of research. I have to write based on experience. and. The only thing I did research in this book was uh, getting the timeline right, you know, like certain events that occurred, like the Munich Olympics and, you know, and, you know, the, 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 the Mossad stuff and all that kind of stuff. I, I don't claim to be historical or accurate or anything like no, that. No, I understand. It's, it's just more, but it is the Beirut as I remembered it. I didn't have to go to Beirut or, I mean, I went to my yearbook basically and a lot of um, photographs that I had to refresh my memory of the setting. You say your yearbook. Were you educated there in Beirut? At, at- uh, yeah, American Community School. I was oh. 12, 13, 14. 11, no, I was actually younger. I was, the gram was 12, 13, 14. Yeah. I was like uh, 10, 11, 12 wow. when we were there. I was scared about writing it. I mean, definitely. Once I passed that 15,000 word mark and just started writing itself and I, I was really surprised when you know a lot of the reviews like the post and stuff like that and all that would come back and have comparisons to like you know spy thriller because i <laughs> you know i don't see that at all i, I, I didn't see that when i was writing it i just wanted to get up i was really influenced by stephen king's the body mm. which be, became the movie stand by me okay and i liked that idea of, of having a body but him actually witnessing what happened and then having his body just um, looming and then breaking curfew. So he can't really go to his father. You know, and, uh, of course, ends up doing the right thing. That's how it sort of wrote itself. The process was just sitting there every day at the same time, and just uh, writing. Yeah, on the, on the dust jacket, you know, right there. One part Stephen King's The Body, another part John Le Carre's A Perfect Spy. It's a transformative crime story told with heart and genuine experience. And yeah, I, I get that. And uh, that's what I was feeling all the way through it as well. So that's kind of interesting that as you were writing it, the, the square peg fell into the square hole. You didn't have to jam it. <laughs> yeah. As too many authors try to do, and it shows. So when did you start getting uh, those 15,000 words out? When was that? Do you remember chronologically, time-wise? Jeez, I don't remember when, in 2019, was I writing? Do you remember? (laughs) I don't know. I I know that uh, we were- it was an idea. Yeah, I think it was an idea. We had uh, both met down at uh, Mysterious Bookseller. Casey uh, Barrett, one of our friends, was uh, having a book talked about down there you know he was doing a reading and then that was was the beginning of our conversation about this and then later on at Bausher Khan, when we were with uh, Jay Todd Scott that you know you mentioned it a little bit more and about your hesitancy with it but it turned out yeah you found a voice with it and 
you were able to do it. And you didn't have to rely on any of the tropes of the third shift burglary squad. You know, yeah. you know, I'm yeah, I, was, I was paranoid that it was a, a just really serious. I was scared to death. Okay, once I turned it in, I thought my editor would just throw the whole manuscript to the wall or throw his laptop to the wall. You know, say, this sucks. You know, what the hell is this? You know, they liked it. I was actually very surprised. And of course, you know, they wanted to work with you to uh, polish it, right? They, you know, that's what a developmental oh, course, editor yeah. does. Yeah. But you had, before you started it, you had a developmental editor or acquisition editor say, yeah, you pitched the idea and they liked it. So then you delivered on that idea. And then they said, okay, let's, let's make this a better written book. And, and I'm not afraid to say that about my editor either. You know, I, I don't think that the pearls of wisdom that I send to my editors, you know, don't need any change or any shuffling. I, I know that I got to do some work on it. So yeah, they well, are- actually with Josh Kendall, um, he runs the imprint under little Brown and he's also my editor, but with our relationship is, I mean, he's definitely a creative editor, but he doesn't read it until I'm done. Okay. And, and then offers advice. Uh, then offers great advice. And, and you know, a, a lot of it I, I take, you know, I mean, most of it I take. He doesn't get bits and pieces as I write. We don't work that way. He'd rather get the whole manuscript than I'd rather deliver the whole manuscript. So he didn't help me during the, the writing process. No, I, don't, okay. I can't work that way. No, I, I get that. No, I understand. What I meant to say was you got the green light from your publisher to go ahead with the uh, concept. Yeah. Then you wrote it, and then Josh took a look at it and said, we can polish this up You know, here and there. Yeah, just a little. It really didn't take that much polishing. It was actually really strange. It, it came out right, but there obviously no manuscript is perfect and every manuscript in, you know, needs help. And um, I have a perfect relationship with an editor who I trust that if I had passed away, you know, like halfway through the manuscript, he could actually finish it in my name. You know, that's how good he is. That's nice. I have a good relationship with my copy editor, proofreader, who has saved my butt on more than, you know, one occasion. And, uh, I don't know if my copy editor proofreader could finish what I wrote, but could probably do a much better job <laughs> putting it together. Anyhow, I say that lightly, but that's interesting. But you know what, Dave? I think that the reason it probably didn't need a lot of polishing afterwards was that it had probably been percolating in your head for how many years since you? Oh, were, I don't want to say. I yeah, mean, twenty years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then with uh, the thousands of words that you had written prior to this on the various manuscripts, and the thousands of words that you wrote and had re- done revisions on with the Frankie Marr series. That, you know, by the time you get to this book, yeah, there should be a rhythm. There should be a flow. There should be a, a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a way to set up a chapter, and a way to leave a little cliffhanger at the end. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed Well, I'm halfway through it. I mean, I'm not going to send it back and say, you know, no, I didn't like it. But, you know, I'm halfway mm-hmm. through it, and I'm, I'm liking what I'm seeing so far. And what I see so far is that you really nailed uh, a 12- or 13-year-old boy well in terms of what his view of the world is and how it it revolves around family, around the neighborhood, even his dog, and what to watch for in terms of what to expect out of friendships. And I thought that was kind of neat. I think you really got that well. I mean, this was something, you you know, and the 13-year-old boy in me was saying, boy, I'd like to be in that little fort. (laughs) 
you know, with my binoculars too. So, mm-hmm. so I guess we all have the little 13 year old boy in us. So you finished it and it, it went through the publishing uh, process. How did they decide that they wanted to uh, let the world know about it? How did that go? How was the, um, the launch, I guess, for lack of a better word? Well, the same as all the other books. I mean, they send it to the trades and to influencers, and, you know, people like you and mm-hmm. trade magazines, publishers weekly and all that. And then there's just, a, you know, steps they take. And then it goes to all the magazine newspaper editors, reviewers and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, I mean, they pretty much have a process that they, they do with all the books. And it's a pretty good system. It works. It got great reviews. And I was actually very surprised there wasn't a bad review. Well, are, are you friends with Michael Carita? Yeah, I know Michael. Yeah. yeah. And he's been on the podcast, and he's a good guy. And I, I, I read his review, one of the most exciting new voices to come along in crime fiction in this decade. Swinson's writing is heartfelt, powerful, and authentic. and yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, he was. And Mike's a good guy, but seriously, he has some serious writing chops too. If you've ever read his stuff, he, oh, I know. Yeah, and he's also a PI. He's a real. Yeah, that's uh, that's what we uh, talked about. And and new as smoke, as they say in the trades. But I read this from the back cover off the dust jacket, and I got to tell you, the cover choice really, I love it between the black and the almost like construction. Colored orange, you know how the guys have to yeah, the, the orange burnt vest. orange. Yeah, the burnt yeah. orange. I'm, I'm wearing a burnt orange vest today, actually. So just, you know, I can do that at home. Between the black and the burnt orange, I think, and the white, that just really came across well. And then yeah. your, the picture off the landing, I guess, of, of what would have been his uh, apartment building overlooking uh, Beirut just, just blew me away. Now, is that an actual uh, photo of uh, downtown Beirut or the, the area around the... It's an actual photo, but not from me. Okay. It's from the designer. So um, cool. Yeah, that, that was one of three designs, and that's the one just really stood out. Really pops, i got to say. And, you know, it really does the job. And you had, did you have any uh, say in, in it? You know, oh, yeah. Of okay. course, all the authors there do. Okay, that's good. That's good to hear. Because in some places, you see what the cover looks like, and you either say, oh, it's wonderful, because <laughs> you have to, or you, yeah. say, or you say, it's shit. But I'm sorry, yeah. I, I use the S word. I apologize. But uh, that's the first time I think I've cursed on my own podcast. <laughs> but well, forgive me, because I'll... I'll- you know, I don't, I might say hell no. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's it. Curious. No, but anyhow, no, this is really, this is a dynamite cover. And, you know, the way that City on the Edge is sort of a little offset so that it's not centered perfectly, but it, it just gives that view with that burnt orange, like you said, with the yellow. It's just really a nice cover. I think people need to the website and see it and take a look at it. I think it really sets the mood very well. It, it captured the mood of the book. How do I, I, I want to say that? You know, you, you can judge a book by its cover. Well, they did okay for you on this, with this cover. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. On every cover, actually. I've, yeah. I've been pleased with every cover. They've yeah, you can't go, oh, you know, second, the second girl, uh, which is the reflection from the pond, that, or the, the water. Yeah, the water on the pavement. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that is just, uh, that's what I meant to say. Pavement, mm-hmm. not pond. Yeah, they did you right on that one, too, as well. And so it goes out in the world, and what are you hearing? What's the news? What's, what, what are people saying about David's 
foray into uh, international crime fiction, a la John le Carre and uh, Stephen King. I mean, there was just, I, I don't really like to talk about the praise I get that much. I mean, it's just, it did get a lot of praise in the trades and in the Washington Post and newspapers and, you know, a lot of reviewers. I mean, just loved it. I, I liked most was a lot of writers. Loved it. Yeah, that's cool. And then readers getting to say some nice stuff too on the reviews when they get it. I, I wasn't fishing for, you know, for you to gush about, you know, the book, how it went, but I just like to get an idea from you of uh, the validation that you felt that it backed up what your editors and publishers were saying was being validated by what was happening after you wrote it. So they took a chance on something. You wrote it, it went out there and boom, it's doing what they said it was going to do. Yeah. When the publishers weekly came out, that blew me away. That's cool. That's Mm -hmm. great. No, that's fantastic. And uh, are you supercharged about doing the next one? Well, yeah, it's going to be another standalone that takes place in 1987. Um, sort of, I like to call it punk noir. It'll take place in Long Beach, California. Down by the water with all the... Uh, the yeah, it'll actually be by the, on the good part of Long Beach, not where Joey Day writes and uh, Ryan Gaddis. His new book, The System, takes place in East Long Beach. But this is more the nicer side of Long Beach and will involve a, a nightclub part-time doorman who's actually a PI, but works part-time as a doorman at a nightclub and then something happens and he's called him to help. That sounds cool. Now, yeah. Do you have a story, do you have a storyline for it yet? I mean, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I'm still in the note taking stages right now. I've got to actually sit my butt down and mm. start writing. No, no but you but you know that scene too from your background because you were uh, a promoter at one time. Yeah, you, yeah. Again, based on experience. No, that's cool. So why don't we just you know delve into that a little bit? You know, your background before policing because you had a re- you have a very varied background. So talk about how your background would help with the with this new book. Well, after college in film school at Cal State Long Beach. I fell into a relationship with a girl who was really into the punk rock alternative music scene. And circa 1983. Okay. 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 We opened up actually a record store in a seal beach, California that was mostly alternative and punk. And there were so many kids. I mean, I'm talking, you know, hundreds of kids who just like, crowded around the store because they had no place to go. I mean, they didn't have cars, so they couldn't go to Orange County to the, you know, to the clubs there or, or LA, you know, to the Al's bar, or the whiskey or wherever they were playing, you know, like punk rock or alternative music. And from there, I, we ended up thinking, you know, maybe promoting conscience would be a cool, cool thing to bring some bands to Long Beach. Cause there was just no, there was a scene, but there was no place for bands to play, but we ended up finding a ballroom. And I think the first show was more on the alternative side with the Violent Femmes huh. uh, with a lot of local bands. And then, I mean, we play everyone from Johnny Thunders to Social Distortion to No Doubt having one of their first shows there, you know, Gwen Stefani. And then from there, I found a club that held 450 people and then it became full-time for me, you know, six nights a week. Wow. That's where Hunter S. Thompson and Timothy Leary and all those people entered the picture because I had a, a dead night Wednesdays where I couldn't figure out what to do. And the writer in me 
thought of an idea of having evenings of conversation with like counterculture heroes or writers. And so I, get, I got people like, you know, Hunter S. Thompson and Jello Biafra, Jim Carroll, Timothy Leary, and, you know, John Waters, and, you know, all these people to come and speak and, you know, or do st- John Waters did stand up comedy. Ah. You know, so it was pretty cool. And Hunter S. Thompson just babbled. <laughs> well, we don't know what he was doing at that moment. You know, I'm sure there was some some concoction of some there were, Yeah, there were definitely concoctions that he had put together and taken, I'm sure, but but there were moments of brilliance in what he in, Oh in, yeah. A stream of consciousness writing with what he did. Fear and loathing in Las in Vegas. Las Vegas, yeah. Plus Fear and loathing on the campaign trail. Yep. Yep. Fear and loathing. Yeah. And he did a couple others, but yeah, something about his description of a Gerber mini magnum still haunts me to this day. It's a small, very sharp knife. But anyhow, so this is going to to take a little bit of that uh, world, which is a totally different world than what you've written before. Mm-hmm. And even Frankie only touches a little bit on this music, doesn't he, in a stolen record community? He's into the music. I wrote yeah. that in. Yeah, okay. You know, definitely. So, Especially in crime song. Yes. So, yeah, some he gets his vinyl back, which is very important. <laughs> but, Except uh, for bread. Bread was broken. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, and now, that's, that, now their songs are going to stay in my head for the rest of the night. Thank you very much, yeah. Dave. Well, actually, Bread was his mother's album. So that, that mm. meant more to him than a lot of his punk stuff. So bread, bread is certainly not punk. A Long Beach alt rock venue and the guy's a, a doorman, you said? and He's a working PI, but yeah, sort of ekes a living as a PI and, and has to work part-time as a doorman. Okay. The, the stage door. Promise me he doesn't pick any locks. <laughs> no, he doesn't. No, he's uh, he has other vices, but you know. Okay, yeah, I, I talk about that occasionally when I get on my pod on podcasts about what are the things that uh, real private investigators don't do, and I said ninety nine point nine percent of them don't have a lock pick set. <laughs> you know? I know, and yeah, Frank broke rules. He broke rules as a real cop, and he broke oh, yeah. rules as a PI. So. I know, but it fit him. Perfectly. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about other PIs that don't have that sort of, that don't come from the Frank Marr world, you know, where he's coming from. I know exactly where he's coming from. And I'm not going to spoil this for uh, my listeners. They get a chance to read Frankie Marr. But I'm just saying the Michael Carita PI, the John Hoda PI, we don't own a lock set, <laughs> lock pick set. <laughs> if we want to get on a do- in a door, we usually knock on it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this new PI, uh, well, I don't know how even have a name for him yet, but he'll uh, he'll be on the up and up. Good, at least part of it. And does the third book is it in the uh, in your brain cell somewhere, or is is it out there yet? Do you have it? Not yet. I mean, I have an idea that, that involves a secondary um, Frank Mars, a secondary character. Frankie is a secondary character in that book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, you 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 tease us with the young kid in book three that he actually Playboy, uh, yes, Playboy, yeah. Calvin. Calvin. That's yeah, right. I like, him, I like him a lot. That's somebody that you could get some uh, traction out of. I think. Yeah, I'd actually like to bring him back. Oh yeah. Speaking of which, 
Any thoughts of uh, resuscitating Frankie? Only as a secondary character. Okay. Yeah. But, then, only but, a- but then Playboy, ha- Calvin has some legs maybe on his own. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to cough the word prequel novella, (coughs) (laughs) novella, (coughs) you know, something like that. But anyhow, that that would be cool. I would love that. So David, how can people get in touch with you, man? I'm on Twitter at case jackets, you know, it's like case jackets. And then I'm on Facebook, David Swinson. Okay. And then I don't really maintain the website anymore that much, but they can get in touch with me. Um, at davidswinson.com. I do answer my own email. Oh, cool. You know, they can also just connect to Twitter and, and I'm on Instagram too. All okay. the normal writing stuff. So our big question, are you going to be in New Orleans? Yes. Late August? Yes. Yeah, are you going to be there? Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's uh, going to be fun. I now, hope it's going to be fun. Well, what, what I'm alluding to and what David is talking about is Bausher Khan, uh, Mystery Writers of America, the annual conference that last year I think was uh, virtual, but this mm-hmm. year is live and they're holding it at Grand Hyatt down there. It's going to be a great time. Lots of people already signed up. I am on a panel down there where we talk about what real private investigators do and what they don't do. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah so, so yeah, I'm going to have, that's what, that's why I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to say, do not pick locks. Yeah. <laughs> I've never knocked out anybody with one punch either. That's the other thing. So mm-hmm. well, kinda, I think that guy ran into his face. Yes. <laughs> this is going to be a good time for all of us to get out, uh, to be with other people. It's going to be a wonderful experience, I think. Different writers getting together, uh, readers of our genre. Oh, also, just like Casey, with his Duck Darley, he qualified to be part of the Private Eye Writers Association of America. So when mm-hmm. you when you write this next book, you could submit it, or your publishers could submit it to uh, Private Eye Writers of America for the Seamus Award. Yeah, yeah. Which, Second Girl was up for the uh, Seamus. It was a finalist for the Seamus. That's right. Yeah, mm. I think that's how. That's how I. No, I don't know. Oh, I know how it was. I was at the International Thriller Fest, and I was going through the book and the books that they had out on the big tables. And I, I turned over the cover of your book and I saw that you were a, a, a former Washington, D.C. detective and that you were had written this novel. And that's how I reached out to you. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And of course, Frankie Marr is a P.I. That's great. that you, And you could nothing wrong with submitting again the second time for this yeah. gentleman. Do you have a name for this uh, character yet? For this next book? Yeah. Uh, Sugar. Tentatively titled. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, just just sugar. That works. So, well, David, thank you so much for being my guest today. I certainly appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's great. I always love talking to you. And I look forward to seeing you at Bowser. That's it. I'm going to have to buy you a drink, and uh, we'll, oh, have to, yeah. we'll, we'll have to sneak over to uh, Cafe Du Monde for some beignets if you're allowed that much sugar. I have that T-shirt still. So. Do you really? Yeah, I have one of their T-shirts. Yeah, right. it's gonna, the only bad thing is it's August. It's going to be so miserably hot. Yeah, that's true. And but it'll be worth it. But you'll get to see a, a lot of great bands playing the kind of music you like down there. I mean, you know, yeah. you know blues and jazz. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. You know, so how many sets of uh, that can I take? I can take as many as I want. And that's what <laughs> will be down there. So, yeah. all right. Well, I thank you again. I appreciate it. I can't wait to see you down there. All right, John. You take care. I will, sir. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's conversation and would like to hear about other great detective writers and their books, please go to our website, johnhoda.com, and click on our podcast page. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the email list to get John's new novella, Liberty City Nights, for free. Check out the show notes for links to all of John's publications, ways to connect with today's guest, and more. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by the conversation today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends or leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. It's the best way to grow the circle. We appreciate your support, and we'll see you next time.